Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Sparks in Action podcast. This is Donna. I'm so happy you're here. We have a really interesting and fun episode today. And I'm going to let my guests introduce themselves. So we'll start with Raj. And Raj, would you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, hello. Uh, my name is Raj Pandya. I'm a lecturer at uh, SUNY New Paltz, and I'm the planetarium director uh, at SUNY New Paltz. So I work in the Department of Physics and Astronomy, and that's what my background is. I have degrees in both physics and astronomy. And as a lecturer, my primary thing that I do is I teach uh, introductory astronomy and introductory physics in a lab setting. And a really cool part of my job is that I'm the planetarium director at New Paltz. So we have the John R. Kirk Planetarium at SUNY New Paltz. Um, it's a small planetarium, but we have a lot of fun in there. Um, I teach people how to use the planetarium. I also present my own planetarium shows and I encourage students to do their own planetarium work. Um, so that's a major part of my job as astronomy outreach. Um, and a little bit about my educational background. I have a degree in applied physics uh, from RPI in Troy, New York. That's what I did my undergrad in. I was a physics major. And then I got my master's in astronomy from San Diego State. Uh, I did that in 2008. And I've been the director of the planetarium and lecturer at New Paltz since 2011. Uh, before that, I was teaching as an adjunct in, in various different places. Actually, New Paltz is the 10th place uh, that I've taught. So <laughs> that's a little bit of a little bit of background about me. Oh, that's great. Great. Thank you for that. That's wonderful. And welcome, Allison. Please tell us about yourself. Yeah. Hello. My name is Allison Shenneman. I am a third year undergraduate student uh, working in astronomy, biology and physics at the State University of New York at New Paltz, the SUNY New Paltz, and I'm working towards a dual degree. I work a lot of jobs throughout the campus in a plethora of different areas, um, especially through the planetarium and the observatory. So I'm one of the students that Raj taught how to use the planetarium, and now I get to present my own shows there too. Um, I also tutor for our introductory astronomy courses, and I conduct research on campus. I'm currently doing research with exoplanets and planetary spectrum. And a huge part of something that I'm interested in pursuing in my future is like science communication and being able to convey science to a non-scientific audience, which I feel like through the help of people like Raj in my life, I've been able to learn more how to do. Oh, that's great. Now, so welcome to both of you. I'm so happy you're here. Now, listeners, this is what I want you to know. Aside from you meeting two, okay, I'm going to say it, stellar individuals. I know, I know. We uh -huh. all roll our eyes. Hey, you got to do it. You got to. You got to do it. You got to have me. You got to. I have to say it. Um, but what I want you all to know is that we have been teaming up, the three of them, not because I'm a physicist or an astronomer, far from it, but because uh, we have teamed up and co-created these amazing planetarium shows where either Raj or Allison will do a beautiful night sky program. And then I follow it with a guided meditation, uh, more or less a guided yoga nidra where people are seated in the planetarium in very comfortable seats. And it's a beautiful, very popular program if we say so ourselves. Yeah. So Allison and Raj are friends and colleagues, again, not colleagues because I am an astronomer, but colleagues because we team up for these programs. And 
really, um, I'm going to embarrass the two of you in a in a good way, which is to say that both of them just create. And I'm not talking about just the shows we do together. I mean, when they do just straight out uh, planetarium shows without the guided meditation, they're phenomenal shows. They're just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I started going to the planetarium shows way before I came on board to do these programs. My husband and I were going and just were sort of blown away. It was like, we have this amazing planetarium, these people providing these incredible shows five miles from my house. So I want, that's the little personal piece, but I wanted them yeah. to introduce themselves. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So I'm going to start out, maybe Raj will start with you. And I want to ask the question, what amongst this incredible field of astronomy and cosmology, what do you find I'm sure there's a zillion, gazillion fascinating facts, but can you share with us one or two facts that you think are compelling and fascinating for the lay person to understand? Mm -hmm. um, yes, thanks. Uh, thanks for the question. Thanks for having us again. Um, and I was, I was thinking about that, like there's so many facts, as you said, about astronomy. It's like the whole universe, right? Um, but I just, I always come back to, I think astronomy gives me perspective, and I think it does for a lot of people too. Um, and sometimes that perspective can be maybe misunderstood by a new learner um, to make you think that you're small and insignificant or something like that in the universe. Um, that's true, we are small and in some ways insignificant. But um, when we're talking about how long we've been here, it's kind of cool to put our human existence in context of like time scales. For example, the universe or the, um, the age of the solar system or the age of Earth. And so I think this is something that I kind of uh, always remember as like a cool, fun fact. So I can give you some interesting information here. Uh, so if we look at, I just looked up um, from a reputable source, like how long have human beings existed, like human beings in like our current state. So that's something like uh, 190,000 uh, years. Okay, so some some large some amount of time that we might think is large, but I was like, let's compare that to the age of the uh, of the Earth. So age of the Earth uh, that we know is 4.6 billion years old, and that's the age of pretty much everything in the solar system. And then what's kind of fun is to compare how long humans have been here to the age of the planets, and that gives us this perspective of how long we've been here. And uh, I don't want to downplay it, like make it <laughs> sound like we're not important, but we literally just arrived. And I think that's something that's uh, important to kind of keep in mind. So let's say I did some like basic calculations. I'm trying to remember. Okay. If, uh, if you take 4.6 billion years and compare that to like a calendar year, let's take one year, 365 days, how long have humans been here? So all you have to do is make a little conversion in the math. And it turns out humans have existed if, again, if the whole planet is one year old, humans have existed for 21.6 minutes wow. out of a year wow. of time, right? And so that kind of gives us a little bit of cosmic perspective. So if you're going to, let's say, and I, I borrow this from other people too. I can't say I made up this whole idea of the calendar year. It's from the show Cosmos, which I, I watched a lot growing up. Um, but they do this on that show too. So like if you say that if right now, this time, right now that we're all you know here and listening to this is let's say December 31st at midnight. So it's like the end of the year and the, the earth started on January 1st at midnight. Uh, humans appeared here on earth uh, on December 31st at 11.38 p.m. 
So it's kind of like we just <laughs> arrived to the party. So we're here for such a, we just got here as human beings and we just developed an intelligence. You can define that in different ways, uh, even more recently. Um, so I think that's one of the cool facts that I can kind of, uh, I can kind of put out there is that uh, our pr perspective, often people think in terms of space, um, in terms of size, which is important in the universe. We have to think about size and distance between okay. things. But a lot of time when people ask me questions, I'll go back to think in terms of time. And I'll give you one more and then I'll, I'll, let, uh, I'll let you ask another question now. But if, let's take the whole history of the universe. The universe itself is 13.8 billion years old. If we do that same thing I told you before, the, the calendar, you know, make 13.8 billion years, 365 days. Humans have been here for seven minutes. <laughs> that's seven minutes. So that's an argument I would kind of use when people say, what about other intelligent life that could exist? I think, yeah, intelligent life outside of Earth could exist. But we've just got here seven minutes ago. What's the chances that some other civilization maybe that we would want to talk to is here at the same time as us? Um, so that's an argument yeah, against kind of <laughs> maybe talking to other intelligent civilizations. That is yeah. fascinating. Talk about time perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, Raj, thank you for that. That is so interesting. And that actually points us towards something, Allison, I wanted to ask you about, which, which relates to all of this, which is, yeah, Raj, you sort of opened the doorway for this, the mm -hmm. likelihood of other quote-unquote intelligent life. Tell us, Allison, what you think about that. Yeah, I've, I'd first like to address like um, in talking about the time scale that humans have been here for and how short it is, um, just how unifying I feel the experience of astronomy is specifically um, on that time scale that um, we can think about all these different civilizations and cultures where um, astronomy plays such a key and significant role. Uh, I saw something the other day about a Mayan civilization that they couldn't find one of these like lost cities or something somewhere in Belize. And they overlaid a map of the stars and they found this city hidden in the, uh, the jungle because it was where they expected it to be based on how it aligned with one of the constellations. Mm. And so for things like how a civilization is built for religions and navigation for timekeeping, how we keep track of our days and our months and our seasons that um, astronomy has played such a key role in our uh, collective like human development. So I just think that's something that I feel like really ties us together too. Mm -hmm. um, but in talking about specifically like the likelihood of humans existing and how we exist as individuals, I think what Raj was getting at with this feeling small, this sense of feeling really uh, insignificant almost in the scale of the universe. I feel like to me, astronomy and, and astrobiology more specifically really makes me feel really precious. It makes me feel like in the, the grand scheme of things, there was such a small chance for me as an individual to exist, for humans to exist, for our solar system to exist, for our galaxy to exist, and, and you can go on. And so I feel like to me, being able to keep in mind how small the chances that I'm here really helps keep me motivated towards that lack of kind of insignificance that you can fall into. Um, yeah. One of the facts that I brought today was uh, the chance of you as a human being, as an individual being developed from our genome. So there are 10 to the power of 30 different viable variations to the human genome. 
that's a one with 30 zeros behind it. So it's a really big number. There's a lot of different viable variations of humans. And the total number of humans ever born, now this is a difficult number to calculate, but the closest estimate we have is right around 100 billion, um, which means that there's a very, very small fraction of a percent of all humans that could have ever existed. It's 0.16 zeros and then a one. So it's a very, very small number of human beings that could have ever existed that exist. And so I feel very uh, special sometimes to be able to live life existing in the way that I get to um, when there are so many other viable human beings and variations that could have been created instead of me. So it makes me feel like a very special number of that that small percentage. Yeah. Yeah. Can I jump in on something? Please also? do. Yes. Yeah. Actually, Allison, yeah, I have to agree with Allison too on the, the significance, insignificant part. I, I use the word insignificant, which actually a lot of people might get from studying astronomy, but that's probably the last thing that you, we want, um, you know, someone maybe to get out of it. Uh, I think like similar to what Allison was just saying, like the possibilities out there and like the fact that we are even here to think about this and know this, I think makes yeah. us feel I feel actually significant as human beings, right? We know that the universe is like this. We understand our own uh, complete kind of chance, like the small the small chances, like Allison was saying, that we're actually even here, that humans are here. And we understand that makes us, I would say, kind of powerful as a species. And uh, in that way, we are significant because <laughs> we know how insignificant we can be in the grand scheme. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, a, that's another fun way to, to kind of look at it. The paradox makes total sense. Yeah. <laughs> and it also speaks to <clears throat> the shared wonder. I mean, who amongst us has not looked up at the night sky and, you know, sort of found them state themselves, pardon me, in a state of wonder and a state of awe. And yeah, it's that dance between wear a speck, you know, to not to not to, you know, kill the cliche, but you know, yeah, we've all heard that. And we are also immense because we're made of that star stuff. We're literally made of that star stuff, literally. So, um, yeah. So, so, and and I I I I have to say that I agree too. That I think that just not even from the science perspective, but just as a human on this planet, you know, to to be able to sort of have a body and live this life is a pretty remarkable thing you know? like it's it's pretty remarkable so um yeah so along with all of this i would like to ask each of you and it doesn't matter what order so please just jump in what are some of the current areas of research that you're finding particularly exciting that you'd like to share with listeners Whoever wants to jump in, I know there's the the, the telescope, the new. Uh... Sorry, I had to clear my throat, so I muted myself. <laughs> I think I'm clear now. I can jump in a little bit. Yes, thank you. Sure. Um, so just thinking about current research and like what we're learning now, I'd mentioned that the James Webb Space Telescope, which is one of the biggest, coolest things in astronomy right now. So that's kind of. That's something that I'm really into. Just um, not that I have any direct access. I'm just a normal person, like reading on, reading, you know, articles online like other people are. But this is one of the coolest things that we have right now. So if anyone's unaware, the James Webb Space Telescope is kind of like NASA's successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. So it's kind of like our biggest, um, best 
telescope that we have uh, now, and it allows us to view things in greater detail and things that are way further away than we ever could before. Um, can so, I just jump in with a question there, Raj? Yeah, so, yeah. For can sure. you can you share with us like sort of the magnitude, like the exponential difference between Hubble and Webb, like? Hubble and how web. much yeah. more powerful? Um, how much more powerful? I'm starting to remember that. So I can tell you definitely the distant the sizes of it. So when you're talking about telescopes, the size, the literal uh, diameter of the light gathering uh, instrument that you're using is mm -hmm. kind of the main thing. So Hubble was 1.4 meters in diameter. Okay. <clears throat> so that's you know how wide it was, and James Webb is 6.5 meters in diameter. Oh. Okay. And it it works at a different wavelength, and the technology is way better. Um, so I think it's something like hundreds of times more powerful than Hubble. Oh, that's um, a lot. Yeah, we can definitely look that up. I, I definitely had that in a presentation when I first started talking about the James Webb. <clears throat> but yeah, something like that, hundreds of times more powerful than Hubble in terms of like what it can see. And it can see things farther away, which means we're looking further back in time. Um, so it's, it's a huge step up. And this thing's been in the works for like 20 years now. I've been reading about the James Webb Telescope for the last 20 years. And it's kind of shocking that it actually works because at some point I'm like, all right, they're never going to do it. <laughs> but they got it together. It works. And it's finding things like how planets and stars form. So star formation, the process uh, by that. And one of my students and one of uh, Allison's uh, peers, uh, Phoebe Harris, I'll plug Phoebe, actually did some interesting uh, research and is continuing to do research um, on that exact topic. So using... James Webb Space Telescope images to learn about different stages of uh, planet formation around stars. We call these protoplanetary disks, uh, disks of gas and dust that are orbiting stars, and just learning about like the chemistry and the process and, and how that works. So with this tool, we're able to like better understand things like that, which I find really interesting. That is so cool. The, the disks that you're describing, is mm -hmm. that is that that process of accretion where the the matter begins to right. and can you tell listeners because I don't want to mm -hmm. use a word and not be descriptive whereas the two of you can yeah accretion disk would work with that so around a newly forming star there's a disk of gas and dust where little bits of <coughs> excuse me little bits of clumps of like dust and matter can be building up and sticking together so that's okay. called accretion so it's called an accretion disk and uh, James Webb Space Telescope, with this one particular research project I'm referring to, um, studies like the shapes of those disks. Some of them have rings, some of them are flat, some of them have like, I don't know, brighter, brighter blobs and uh, maybe other features. And they're trying to relate that to the chemistry, like the molecules and atoms within that disk and see, you know, what's the correlation, um, if any. And so it's, yeah, it's a process by which planets are built um, around stars. Wow. And along with all of this, with what the Webb Telescope is, thank you for that information. That was, by the way, I just want to go back for a second. Fascinating. The difference in the diameter is pretty significant. Um, and then, Allison, you mentioned a term earlier that I think maybe ties in with this, which you, you mentioned exoplanets. And does this does a web telescope, is it teaching us a lot more about exoplanets? And can you share with our listeners what exoplanets are? Yeah, so an exoplanet is an extrasolar planet. So it's a planet outside of our solar system. Um, the web telescope is teaching us a lot about exoplanets. A part of that is that protoplanetary disk, being able to learn about how planets form and out of what chemicals and materials they form. Uh, it can teach us a lot about the origins of our own solar system and how 
the chemical composition comes together in order to make a solar system like ours possible. Um, and it can teach us a lot about the habitability of these planets in other solar systems um, outside of our own. It can also teach us a little bit about the habitability of our own solar system um, is I think something really important and key to astronomy is being able to look out and understand all of these things that might be happening really far away from us, but being able to point it back towards ourselves and, and learn more about the earth and our own origins and, and everything through that. There's a quote that I really like by um, T.S. Eliot, an American poet, who he says, uh, we shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And I carry that quote with me all the time because I feel like it speaks so clearly to what I feel astronomy really is. It's this search for all of these other things. It's this journey. And I feel that maybe especially in my 20s now, um, this like trying to find answers elsewhere. Um, but the most important part being to be able to turn around and bring that back home, what, what that means for us. So I think one of my favorite things about astrobiology and planetary science and things like that are looking out and trying to find life and understand the origins of life better, understand how these planets are formed and how they can become habitable and what makes them habitable and being able to then look back at our own origins and figure out how we got here um, and what made us. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I just, uh, oh, please go ahead. No, I was just, yeah, I just Googled uh, how many, how many times more powerful is James Webb than Hubble? It is a hundred times more powerful. So a hundred times better at seeing things, which is like a, obviously a significant. That is increase. enormous. Wow. Thank you for that. Thank you for Googling mm -hmm. that. And Allison, thank you so much for that. <laughs> um, I just want to share with both of you that uh, when you mentioned the T.S. Eliot poem, when I first started, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it relates. When I first started doing um, doing quite a bit of meditation and then bringing it into my clinical work, and I was, uh, I named my practice Centerpoint, and it was sort of base, Centerpoint based on that sort of. <laughs> there's not really a de departure, and there's not really a return, but we'll we'll leave that aside. <laughs> we get into poetics and philosophy. <laughs> um, so thank you for sharing that. And you mentioned something, and this is going to take me into a fun question. Uh, Allison, you mentioned something about thinking about other planets and are they, you know, habitable. And so I pose this to both of you. Don't care who, who answers first. Uh, should we colonize Mars? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> nay, nay. Would you go? <laughs> That's good. Yeah, that is a fun question. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, I, I propose that question to my class too, because I want to see the discussion. So I'm going to, I post that as like a dis yeah, discussion question. And actually there's yeah. going to be speaking of SUNY New Paltz, there is a uh, event coming up actually, which someone's going to speak exactly on that. Okay. Um, I, I might say that uh, I think I'm all for exploration and uh, colonization of course can be very bad as we've seen in the past. Um, if there's something, if there's any chance that there's something living there, which there's no, there's no sign of that right now on Mars, so not current life, not past life, nothing, then we shouldn't, we shouldn't try to mess with it <laughs> and colonize. Um, if we're sure that there's no living organism or nothing that we're, um, you know, doing a lot of harm to, then I'm all for exploring Mars, like sending people to Mars and uh, trying to set up some kind of habitable living situation there. Um, that would be many, many thousands of years, I think, in the process to get something like sustainable. Um, but then, yeah, like, you know, exploring and 
and we can set up places where that could be a place where humans could actually live. So I'm all for that. Um, but the caveat is like, you know, there could be, you know, make sure we're not destroying any type of life or any possibility of life actually being there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a big distinction between colonization and exploration and mm -hmm. setting up habitations. How about you, Allison? If you had the chance, <laughs> would you go? And <laughs> what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard to answer that because like what Raj, I think, was kind of getting at, it's it would have to be so far in the future um, because it's just nowhere near habitable currently. There's nothing I don't feel, at least unless something major changes um, in my lifespan or uh, any generation that would still be connected to mine that that would have the possibility to live on Mars. Um, I've heard before that that. Uh, the ocean floor is more inhabitable or more habitable than what Mars would be currently. Um, and I don't exactly feel like living on the ocean floor either. So <laughs> I feel like, I feel like my current answer would be no. I also often get asked when I tell people that I, I study astronomy, that they all ask me if I want to be an astronaut or I want to go to the moon or if that's my goal. And it's just certainly something that doesn't interest me. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that it interests other people and I'm glad that there are people that do it because I think it's really important work. Um, like I know we had soil samples brought back from the moon and I want to say this was only a few months ago as of when we're recording this that um, we were able to actually grow plants in moon soil mm -hmm. and, and we wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise and um, those are things that really like fascinate and interest me but I would much rather be the one growing the plants in the moon soil here than I would be going to collect it. So personally, I'm not interested, but I'm glad that there there's the kind of spark in the interest to to continue funding astronomical endeavors um, because of this like increased interest in colonizing Mars in the same way that I feel the space race and being able to send a man to the moon really propelled our um, research and astronomical uh, understandings forward because we had such an increase in funding and interest in the public kind of gathering around astronomy. I don't mind if Mars is the next thing that we kind of use for that purpose, uh, but I personally am not interested in going. <laughs> Which this is a sort of segues into another question I thought would be fun to ask each of you, which is imagine I'm like beyond Elon Musk and I have unlimited funds. And somebody, or somebody comes to you with unlimited funds and says, here's money, grant money for an area of research. So the question to each of you, what would you love to utilize those funds for? What kind of research particularly, specifically? Um, I could, I would think uh, another thing, which we would have to be very careful not to mess up any potential life, but uh, I think we should uh, spend some thought and money researching Europa, the, uh, one of the moons of uh, Jupiter, um, because that one has been, you know, thought of for a long time as being a possible place where life could exist, going back to the you know, life in the universe question. Um, but I don't think there's a lot of, I don't think there's any project on the table right now, a serious one that has something going to Europa to kind of just study it in more detail. Um, so I think that would be one of the most interesting interesting things um, that I want, want, want to see some more research in. Um, so Europa is an icy moon of Jupiter. So it's a small moon. It's covered in ice. We know that. And we know that underneath there's water. 
We know that there's geysers, water breaks through the ice sometimes and like goes into the atmosphere and it comes down as snow. And so I've, I think I've read some ideas of building an orbiter that doesn't, you know, touch Europa or doesn't try to damage anything, but just orbit very close and kind of like almost skims very close to the surface and tries to catch some of this water as it's being uh, erupted in geysers and study that to see if there's any signs of biology uh, or something like that in there. So I think that's one of the cool things I'd like to see. I don't know if there's any, again, specific plans for that. There's ideas, but I think uh, investigating Europa would be a lot of fun. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Had no idea. Uh, geysers, an icy moon mm -hmm. with geysers. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's not the only one too. There's another one called Enceladus, which we found that on first. It's, it's, maybe there's a lot more out there too. And where is that? Is that an, and, a, a Jupiter? Um, yeah, Enceladus, no, is the moon of Saturn. Okay. And that was, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, I think it's the first moon that we saw, you know, water spewing out in the form of geysers. Um, so that may be a common thing with a lot of these icy moons. Okay. Wow. Thank you. And how about you, Allison? Somebody hands you this big chunk of money. What are you going <laughs> to, what are you going to research? Raj completely stole my default answer. <laughs> um, no, as as an astrobiologist, my my like key thing is trying to find life elsewhere, and so I've I've heard a lot of talk about Europa being that place, and like what Raj was saying, I know of no missions currently that are looking uh, deeper into that, and so with unlimited funds, I think that would be uh, kind of a key place of, of interest to me. Um, but I think maybe going more of the like physics route instead. Um, I think there's a lot of mysteries left uh, for like my generation of scientists to be able to uh, try and attempt to uncover. And I think in a lot of my classes currently, we're talking about um, like dark matter and dark energy and how um, those interact with the, the universe and um, the fact that only about 5% of our universe is um, baryonic or like ordinary observable matter. It's the, the stars, the planets, us as individuals, galaxies, the things that we can see is only, that makes up only about 5% of the entire universe. And so this other 95% is a combination of dark matter and dark energy. And I think to be able to understand those better is a pretty key, uh, area for my generation of scientists. Um, I also think it would be interesting to try to explore um, even earlier back in time. Um, we have it now pretty precisely. Like I remember the first class where we talked about um, the timeline of the Big Bang and how those events played out, being astonished at how close we can get to the very beginning, this fraction of a second after it all happens. Um, but I think if I was given unlimited funds, I think maybe trying to push that even further back would be really interesting just to see how far we can get. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any listeners who have access to unlimited funds? <laughs> <laughs> We've got two great areas of research. That's that's really great. Um, I mean, the research I'm imagining could be infinite. I, I'd like to ask each of you just a little bit more um, I mean, we got your intros, but just have like a little bit of a personal note. If you could just say a little bit about like, was there a moment where in your life you kind of knew that astronomy, cosmology, physics was it for you? Was there something 
um, that sort of just, you know, cemented it into your soul, if you will? That is a really great question. Um, I think for me personally, I was kind of surrounded by astronomy at a young age. My uh, parents would always leave on the science channel and things like that. And so it was always kind of playing as this like backing like soundtrack to my entire life, like getting home from school, that was what was on the TV. And it was kind of things that we were talking about. And um, neither of my parents are like astronomers or astrophysicists or anything, but um, the their expressed interest when I was little really helped um, shape that interest in me. And so um, I feel very strongly about science communication because of that, I think, because I think it's really important that we educate as many people as possible so that uh, as many people as possible can then share that with their children and, and make it a really accessible area of science. Yeah. I think people hear astrophysics and they go, oh God, I could never do that math or that's way too much or thank goodness you're doing it because I couldn't. And I, I mean, just as much as they feel they can't, I think there are moments where all of us studying it sit there with our calculus two tests and go, I don't know if I can do this either. And I think um, when the information is presented to the right people and made accessible to all kinds of different communities and people who might not otherwise have access to it, I think it makes the likelihood of finding people who can do it and who are so interested in it to persevere and to push past any of those boundaries or barriers in their way um, gets even higher. And so we would have I think so many more scientists and people interested if um, people had that kind of upbringing that I did where they weren't experts in the field, but they knew enough that they could kind of guide me if I was interested. Um, and I was able to go to um, the observatory near where I lived. I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so we went to the, the Lowell Levine Observatory. And then um, there was a, a public planetarium in my uh, public museum. And so I was able to go to that with school events and things like that. And so I feel very fortunate that my schooling system and that my my home life were able to kind of support an early interest enough that I could pursue it further um, with that kind of foundation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the image of you just having sort of science shows on in the background. <laughs> um, and thank you, Raj. How about you? Yeah. Was okay, there good. a moment? Yeah, I'm trying to think of like if there's like a moment. Um, maybe I can. There's maybe many, you know, but like maybe I can sure. choose uh, two. So it's kind of funny think thinking about science shows in the background. Allison just gave a really cool answer <laughs> of that. I I don't know. Maybe I was almost rebellious in doing the opposite in choosing a subject that I actually liked. So my background coming from an Indian American family, uh, my parents were always like, "Okay, you're going to be a doctor. That's it." That was that's like it. You're going to be because every I have two siblings, too. Um, so uh, and they just thought all of us, that's it. You're all going to be doctors. <laughs> Somewhat jokingly, but like that was always like kind of like the push of the, the preordain, of right? Exactly. Yeah. And it was a little bit much. I'm like, what? I'm like, I don't, that doesn't sound great. So almost astronomy and physics was like a rebellion <laughs> against that. <laughs> that like, hey, I can actually pick a subject. I guess once I realized like I can pick the subject that I'm actually interested in and that could be a career like the moment that I realized that that is even a possibility I was thinking maybe I don't know that like your career is picked for you by your parents or something and it's not going to be something you necessarily like that's kind of what I kind of had thought maybe growing up 
Um, so I, I actually always loved this and I was, it's a little bit of a rebellious thing, <laughs> but then obviously my parents did support me once they realized, okay, this can actually be a career. <laughs> uh, but it, it, I think it took some time maybe for them to understand that. Um, so that's, that was kind of a point. Maybe that was, uh, in college, um, when I was a physics major and as an undergrad, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing with this, but then I found, I took an astronomy class. That's actually like one intro astronomy class. And I'm like, Oh, cool. This is an option. Uh, and then another point I can point to was um, a few years later when I was in grad school, I was going for my master's in astronomy and I was still thinking, okay, what do I do with this now? I don't know. And uh, I got to be a TA. So I got to teach an astronomy lab course and uh, I kind of got the bug from that. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is cool. I can teach people and like kind of show them how cool this is. And if someone else can make the own connection in their mind, like what I'm trying to teach, like I always try to teach like leading up to some knowledge instead of just saying, here's knowledge. Like, let me lead you to that. If they can make that connection on their own, I felt that was really cool. And it's almost like kind of like performing, like teaching, uh, which I, that's like the thing that I always like to do as well. So at that point, I'm like, ooh, I like this subject. I can have a career in it and I can teach. Teaching is like the funnest thing. I don't even consider it like a job. I don't know. I've never had like a job, like a nine to five like job. I don't know. I've just been in school the whole time. So I, I, just, uh, I find that's really, I'm really, really lucky that I can do that. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Um, I have something I'd, I'd like to add please. to that. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was so, so good what you said at the beginning where you were like, it, it, there's so many different points that you could point to, to be like, well, this was a moment or this was a moment mm -hmm. and this was a moment. And I just think it's important to emphasize for people that are uh, interested in pursuing something within really any branch of science, within any kind of STEM field, um, that it really is a choice I feel you have to make many different times. Um, I think there are times where it's really easy. And I think those are the times where we point to the most where it's like, oh, I was at the observatory and I was looking at the sky and I was just struck with this feeling that I, this is something I have to do. And I feel like those are easy moments to point towards because they're when it comes the easiest, it comes the most naturally to be like, this is something profound and great that I get to be a part of the, the process of understanding. But I think there are just as many times, if not more, um, where you have to do it in the face of adversity, where you have to do it yeah. despite the fact that you feel like you can't or getting a bad grade or you feel like it's just too much work or there's just too much happening that I feel like you have to you have to be willing to and want to keep picking it over and over and over again, not just when it's easy, but when it's hard, when you have to take all of the math courses and the physics courses and everything that gets more difficult and more difficult as you progress through um, the study and, and the career that you have to want to keep picking it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really important point. It's like, it's like, it's not just the romantic notion or the true joy of the material, but then there's the hard work, um, the really hard work. And interesting, you said something about STEM. I don't want to go off track, but I want you and listeners to know that um, I just had a guest on, her name is Alania Levine. She has a background as a science writer and uh, she now coaches people, mostly people in the STEM fields to sort of help them keep moving on in their field. Like, I don't know if reinventing is the word, but to take their skill sets and keep growing with them and not stay too stuck. Um, yeah, and I realized as I asked the question, actually, it's never just one moment, but there might be moments where um, it's a it's a moment that has a uh, salient to it, where we say, wow, we love this material, but you're both so absolutely right. It's many moments 
And then there's the hard work. <laughs> and uh, it's cool, Raj, that, you know, and it shows, I just want to say that you say like, I work, I like go and I teach, but it's not work, which, you know, yeah. and it shows, it shows like, you know, the way that you run the planetarium and how you bring in students like Allison, who are so outstanding. And, and really it just, um, it, it, you get to bring it out into the community. And I wanted to just say one more thing, which is that, Allison, you mentioned science communication. You mentioned it a couple of times. And I couldn't agree more. And I, I feel like we live in a time now where there's this beautiful shift happening uh, whereby, and a lot of it has to do with podcasts or a big piece of it, where science is getting sort of democratized, where you have these podcasts, things like the Huberman Lab, which is not astronomy and physics, but which is like neuroscience. And these, these amazing scientists who are bringing on these incredible guests onto podcasts and having great conversations and doing their best to language them in a way so that people can really learn, like, graduate level, graduate class, graduate course, excuse me, level learning. And I feel like we are on more than the cusp of it, that it's actually happening. There's so many, so much great science that people now can tune into. So um, may that continue. Um, and you're both without a doubt doing your part. So, well, um, this has been wonderful. And um, I would also like to give both of you the opportunity to share with listeners some of the planetarium events that are coming up. We can start with tomorrow night where the three of yeah. us are involved, but then then go from there and let people know what's happening. I know. I need to plug you two. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're both doing an event tomorrow, which is going to be awesome. Yeah. So let's, let's plug that well, if you're listening to this on the 28th. So tomorrow is March 1st, if you're listening to this. <laughs> um, and we have a great event that you two are running called Meditation Under the Stars, which Donna, you approached me to, about this like idea, I think many years ago now, three years ago, maybe? Well, it started because I, I interviewed you for a little film that I made. And oh. then remember that? And then I approached yeah. you about doing the guided practices in the planetarium. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Right, right, yeah, guided relaxation in the planetarium, and I'm like, okay, well, we'll try it, let's see how it goes, um, and then I noticed that Allison showed up to one of these, uh, when Allison was a student in planetarium operation, I think, and really liked it, I'm like, oh, you would be good at this, because I want to, you know, I would like to offer more, but I'm not always there, and so you two have really picked up it and done a great job, so thank you so much for your work uh, in the planetarium and bringing this program to people, and I always get the comments that this was great, they always tell me, and I'm like, you need to tell those two. So I'll try, I try to forward it to you when I can, but um, it's a, it's a cool event where you can see the stars and you can learn a little bit about like what's happening in the sky, how to find maybe some stars, maybe some constellations, things like that. Um, that's what Allison does now as kind of like the first part. And then Donna takes you through a guided relaxation for the majority of it. And we call it meditation under the stars. And I've always liked it a lot because it helps me, uh, it kind of helps me focus and I can think about something like I, I want to improve on. And, uh, I didn't know I was going to do that at first. I'm like, okay, I'm just doing this thing. I don't know if it's going to be any good or or anything's going to come out of it. But I actually like them a lot, so I need to attend another one <laughs> soon. But you two have been doing a great job. So March first is the next one. And if you, it's too late, I think we're actually we're almost full on that date. We have another one on the 12th of April. Yeah. Yeah, April 12th, there's another meditation under the stars, and that's going to be our last one for the springtime. And then uh, we will, you know, we'll add more as we as we go. 
Um, our planetarium shows, our public planetarium shows called Astronomy Night are on the first and third Thursday of each month. Um, so those have been going really well. Um, after a few years of COVID, it was really tough because nobody wanted, uh, you know, we couldn't open for many years and no one wanted to go out. But now we're, now we're back and strong, which is cool. Um, we've added some weekend shows for young kids ages three to six, which is a group that we weren't really targeting before because most planetarium shows are more for like seven or up is what we usually say. But I've got another great student who works really well with young kids, three to six year olds. So we have a couple of those on the weekends that we're looking to add more. Um, another cool thing. So if anyone's interested, you go to our website, uh, newpulse.edu slash planetarium. We have our schedule there, uh, a link to buy tickets. Um, tickets are usually suggested uh, or a $5 uh, ticket price. So you can check out our, our information there. Great. Great. Thank you for that. Talk about accessible. And, and yeah. I have to thank Allison. Allison's been taking over social media, which is amazing. Allison's been creating the uh, Instagram page for the planetarium. And like, I don't know how to do any of that. <laughs> you know and Allison's like can I do this I'm like yes please so that's brought so many people to us so thank you Allison for doing that um getting us to you know where people actually are like on Instagram and social media I'm just like <laughs> I email people and I have a website but uh, you're reaching a lot a lot more people so thank you so much for that yeah. you can plug your plug our uh, Instagram page I guess yes um first I want to say really quickly too I have uh my public night show on the 30th of March, um, which I'm really looking forward to, um, but also that you can find all of those uh, and many more things on the uh, Planetarium Instagram page. It's at NP Kirk Planetarium. So it's NP, the letters N and P, and then Kirk, K-I-R-K Planetarium. And that's on Instagram. Um, I post things there that are uh, related to specific planetarium events, observatory events that might be happening. We had stuff about the comet, things like that. Um, the green comet that just came by. And I also try to post just kind of general science information and, and things to try to communicate science to the public as doing, uh, as a part of doing my astronomy tutoring, uh, for one of the classes Raj is teaching in another class. Um, I, uh, have met a lot of students who are not STEM majors that, um, are taking the class as one of their general education requirements just because they're kind of interested in astronomy and they don't know what other science to take. And so I've heard a lot of uh, kind of where I feel the gaps might be in um, communicating science through and, and being able to connect it from high school into what you were kind of talking about, Donna, with the uh, understanding it at a more graduate class level. Um, and so I try to also highlight topics and, and things like that that are interesting to me. Also, I have stuff up about like sustainability and the earth um, and, and those kind of connections too. So I really love the uh, planetarium a lot. I love science communication and I feel like I try to let that show through that Instagram page. So feel free to give us a follow there. Well, two things about that. I will put in the program notes, all the links. And um, also the fact that I've said this before, but the fact that you both love what you do really shows. So thank you, Raj, and thank you, Allison, mm -hmm. for the work that you do and uh, for coming on to Sparks in Action. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us, Donna. Yes, yeah, thank, thank you so, you so much. much. My pleasure.